The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have come to sing your praises. We have come to sit before the truth of your word. We have come to fellowship with one another, Lord, knowing that we, we need each other in this life to, to grow and to be strengthened in the faith, to point each other to Christ. Lord, we need the gospel to be proclaimed every day into our lives. We need to be proclaimers of the gospel into one another's lives and into this community that we live in. So Heavenly Father, with those things that we have come to do, we ask that you would enable all of these through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would open our ears to the truth of your word, that you would allow what is to be preached upon today to be helpful to this church body. We thank you for the Psalms. What a joy it is to spend time studying them together. We look forward to our time in Genesis next, but for right now, Lord, we we thank you for the refreshment that comes in this current season in the Psalms. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Please have a seat. Well, for many of you, you probably already have heard that I'm about a week away from taking a trip with Hannah. My oldest child, who is 14 years old, is going to be going on her first overseas trip. She's going to be going to Europe. The first time I went to an overseas trip, I went to Europe, was I was 16 years old. So she's getting a jump on me by a couple of years. And then Vanessa and I also traveled to Europe when we were in our mid-20s, before we had children. And every time previously, well, the two times previously I've gone, I've been able to go to Switzerland, which is where our ancestors hail from. And so naturally, as I was looking at this, setting up this trip, I, I kind of started to narrow in my sights on, could we make a trip work to go to Switzerland? And due to COVID restrictions and whatnot, that wasn't possible this time. So we'll go a little bit further south. But... Once you start having something in your mind, if you're like me, it starts to just percolate there for a while. And then all of a sudden, you're thinking about Switzerland. For me, that's what I'm, I'm getting at. I was thinking about Switzerland, or, or uh, memories will come up, or articles will pop out a little bit more. Um, they'll stand out, and you're like, oh, that's, that's something I'm interested in, because I've been thinking about it. Well, that happened even in preparing for the, the sermon for this morning. I found a story about... Switzerland. It's a nice narrative that goes very well with our text today that we're going to be preaching through. The setting of the story is on the Matterhorn in Switzerland. So the Matterhorn, for those of you who are not familiar, is a very majestic peak uh, right on the the border of Switzerland and Italy. And it it is a sight to behold. 
uh, when Vanessa and I went and stayed in Zermatt, we were just underneath this mountain. We only saw it a couple times because it was fairly cloudy while we were there, but very picturesque and a very dominating feature of the landscape. So the story that I'm going to share with you, picture mountaineering in the late 19th, earliest 20th century, and you'll get the, the, the idea of when this mountaineering trip is taking place. So I, I got this from a, a book written by Reuben Torrey, and this is what he writes. Four men, once climbing up the slippery, slippery side of the Matterhorn, a guide and a tourist, a second guide and a second tourist, all roped together. The lower tourist lost his footing and went over the side. The sudden pull on the rope carried the lower's guide with him, and he carried the other tourist with him. Three men are now dangling over the cliff, this dizzy cliff. But the guide who was in the lead, when he first felt the the pull upon the rope, drove his pike into the ice, he braced his feet and held fast, Three men dangling over the awful abyss, but three men safe because tied to the man that held fast. The first tourist regained his place upon the path. The guide regained his, and the lower tourist regained his, and on up they went in safety. As the human race ascended the icy cliffs of life, The first Adam lost his footing and was swept over the abyss. He pulled the next man after him, and the next, and the next, and the next, until the whole race hung over the abyss. But the second Adam, the man in the glory, stood fast. And all who are united to him By a living faith, though dangling over the awful awful precipice, are safe because tied to the man in the glory. Church, this is at the very heart of the text that we're going to be covering today. Being able to trust God to do what he has promised that he will do. The psalmist, King David, He was promised that he would have a descendant upon the throne forever. Forever. God said to him, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 2 Samuel 7, 16. That was a promise made to David. Do you ever take time to reflect upon the promises of God? This psalm is just such a reflection. We need this, church. We need this every day in order to stand firm against the evil one. For the promises of the evil one, which he makes promises to, permeate the world system that we live in. The devil's promises permeate the ideologies that we believe. 
and even encroach upon the thoughts that are taking place in our minds. Of course, the promises of the evil one are lies because that is Satan's native tongue. He is the father of lies. That's why we need to see like David did. We need to see that we can trust God and by faith live according to his promises. We need to trust God and by faith live according to his promises. This is what we're going to be looking at at the heart of our passage today. We're going to cover it in three movements, three points. The first one is going to be verses one through four. Be looking at the one true God. It all starts with putting our focus upon the one true God. And then we're going to move to how he provides for us in our fullness of being in verses five through eight. That'll be the second point. And then lastly, verses nine through 11 are, are going to be the God given joy, the gift that God gives us, God given joy. And as we move through the passage, as I preach this today, what you're going to see is the first one where we're going to focus on the one true God, that's going to be the, the biggest section we're going to look through. And then we're basically going to take about half the time to look through the next section and then another half on the next. So it's going to kind of be a descending order of uh, magnitude, if, we do, if you will, as we move through these points. So let's look together at how we're going to trust God and by faith live according to his promises by focusing first and foremost on the one true God. In verse 1 of our passage, we read, Preserve me, O God. That's just the first section of our, our verse. Preserve me, O God. Or protect me. Protect me, O God, for I take refuge. Preserve me, O God, in you I put my trust. So preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. That's our ESV. But then in the, in the New King James or in the NASB, it's very similar. All three of these translations are, are great translations. But you can see that our Bible translators have, have come to very similar conclusions on how they work through the original Hebrew. Preserve me, O God. So the very first section we are looking at is laying this foundation that we have something to stand upon, something to put our trust in. And if you want to be a person who trusts God and live according to his promises, you have to be ready for times of wantonness. When you need to call out and say, preserve me, O God. We all have those times. We need to know where we call out to and, and why we call out to him. In doing so, in saying, preserve me, O God, preserve me. You're not saying because of my own righteousness. That's not at the heart of this call. The preserve me, O God, is as a humble cry. It's saying, I can't preserve myself. I can no longer protect myself. So therefore, I am calling out to you, the one true God, to do what I know I cannot do. I cannot save myself. Just take this as the perspective on how the Holy Spirit-inspired David was writing this portion of Scripture. He was God's human agent, if you will, to pen this. And he starts this wonderful psalm, Psalm 16, with, Preserve me, O God. 
The same man, mind you, who sought numerous ways to preserve himself, much like many of us do. I'll give you a few examples of times when David tried to preserve himself. He had to flee from Saul, who was the first king. So on one of these occasions, he's fleeing from Saul, and he flees to the land of his enemies. So David has already at this time been a, a proven warrior. He's slain the Philistines, and he chooses to flee to the land of the Philistines. This is his scheme to save himself from Saul. And as he gets there, he realizes this isn't working out quite like I thought it would. They're not taking me in with open arms. They realize who I am. So what does he do? He changes his behavior before them. He pretends that he's going insane or that he is insane, and he allows spittle to run down his beard so that he really tries to act the part of being out of his mind. We find that in 1 Samuel 21. David, similarly, as, uh, while he's fleeing, doesn't have weapons with him, doesn't have any food with him. So what does he do? He goes and he asks the priest, hey, is there anything to eat around here? Well, there's the holy bread. You guys have heard this story, I'm sure many of you. And, and he tells him, yeah, we, we're, we're good to go. We can take the holy bread. And so the priest gives it to him. And then there's no weapons other than the weapon that he had liberated from the giant. So then he takes the sword. So he's working on these schemes to save himself, which, again, we all do this. David is the same man who also schemed to get out of being caught for his adulterous affair with Bathsheba by having her husband murdered on the front lines of a battle, putting him where the the fighting is most severe and then having everyone back away from that spot so that Uriah would be slain. In each of these, what was David doing? He was attempting to preserve himself. He was attempting to protect himself. I do this so often, it's lamentable. I would venture that you get caught up in various schemes of trying to protect yourself as well. Just take one of those examples I gave from David's life. The adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. This was not what David should have been doing. I mean, he is the anointed leader of God's people. The kings of Israel were supposed to be able to handwrite copies of the law. They knew what was commanded of them. And yet he gave himself over to consuming what he shouldn't have been consuming. Now, for us, you might be listening right now thinking, well, this is talking about somebody else. This is David. But as I'm starting to drill in a little bit, you might realize, actually, this could be pointing at me as well. I might get caught up in trying to protect myself. If you have Christ, that's how conviction works. You might be caught up in a pursuit that's contrary to what God would have you to be doing. And instead of leading the charge and conquering sin in your life, you're dangling over the side of the mountain, like that illustration I gave in the opening, and you're just hanging over the abyss. 
suspended. But all is not lost, my friends. You have been caught, which is a good thing to be, to, to be caught. And it, it could be the exact perfect place for where you need to be right now. Take notice the rope that is attached to you, the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ keeps you from falling. It's powerful to save. But if you see yourself there, what do you do now? How, where do you go once you've become suspended over the abyss and you're just hanging there by the blood of Christ? Well, let's just start with the obvious. It's no secret that you're in trouble, okay? It's no secret that you're in trouble if that's where you're at. You might think you have everyone fooled and you might have the wool pulling over everyone's eyes, but the person who is holding the rope, who is attached to, knows exactly what's going on in your life. You will never fool God. If you're thinking right now, I got this covered, I still can fix this. Maybe it's something going on in your inner mind. You can say, I have my inner mind locked down. No one knows my thoughts. No one knows the things I'm entertaining inside of my head. Or maybe it's on the computer and you're like, I've taken care of this. I've deleted, the brow- I've deleted my browsing history. It's wiped clean. No one knows where I've been. Or you've been interacting with someone you shouldn't be and your phone is full of text messages or it was, but you took care of that as well. Or you've set up a fake social media account so that you can go and take care of some business online that you're not supposed to. Or worse yet, you found others that have affirmed you in your poor decision-making and said, this is good. You should be involved in this. These are all ways that we can get caught up thinking we've got this covered, we've got this wired tight. But those are lies. Whatever it might be, just stop. Realize you are suspended over the edge of the abyss like those climbers. But you are suspended by a rope that is holding you if you belong to the Lord and he will not let you go. He is the rock. He is the immovable one. He is the one who conquered sin and death and Satan. He will hold you. He will keep you from falling. Therefore, you only have one thing left to do if you're in that place. Call out to him. Call out to him. Call out to him like David does at the beginning of the psalm and just see what happens when you do. Call out to him. See what happens when you do. Trust God. And by faith, live according to his promises. The pattern of what takes place after this, after this initial move in your life, is spelled out in the rest of the psalm. As we go through each one of the stanzas, you're going to see how this just continues to cascade into a life that eventually gets to everlasting joy. But it starts with calling out to God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. It starts with a call out to the one true God. It can even be a desperate cry to him. 
But in crying out to him, you acknowledge that your dependence is upon him. He is so good, church, to listen. He is so good to listen to us and to protect us. Each and every one of us have sinned against God. Woefully, we will continue to do so. We will sin against him again. It is to our shame. It is to our shame that we will do so. But calling out to him is to his glory. So every time, take that step. Call out to God and see what he will do. In verse 2, we read, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And just briefly, like any of us that are up here preaching will do, we're going to try to help take a look at what the Bible translators are doing for us when they capitalize L-O-R-D. What they're helping us do is realize this is the covenant name of God. This is Yahweh. I say to the Lord, I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. And we can then, once we realize, well, what's, what's being told to us by the translators, we can then pray this prayer more accurately ourselves and say it more accurately ourselves, like the psalmist is encouraging us to do, and like we, like I'm encouraging you to do. That second Lord, which isn't all capitalized, is master. It's the equivalent of a master. So now as we, we know what these words mean, we can see what's behind this heart cry, this, this prayer. It's this. It's the one true God. The one true God, he is my God. The one true God, he is my God. And I say to him, you are my master. That's how this verse would read if we were to say it in our language, in our, in our prayer. And when we say, God, you are my master, We're saying, you have complete control over my life. You direct my life. And this just builds. It builds bigger and bigger, this truth upon truth, which guides us into all of life. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, acknowledging the first part of the verse We move naturally with the psalmist, realizing there is nothing that is good that we have that is apart from God. Can you say that along with the psalmist, that nothing good that you have is apart from God? This is a a probing question, and one that I would encourage us as a congregation to think about a bit, to journal on if you're a journaler. Even if you're not a journaler, maybe take out a piece of paper tomorrow morning when you open up your word and say, God, is there something in my life that I count as good that is apart from you? And highlight what that is. And then share it with someone that you trust in the faith, that community group that you attend, with your spouse. Think about it. Spend time thinking about it biblically and critically to see if there's something that you are holding on to that you think is good that is apart from God. Because everything that you have that is good is from the Lord. 
This means if you or I believe that in keeping or pursuing that thing that we've identified that's not of God, that it's our own type of good, if you will, anything other than accepting God's goodness for us means that we need to go back to verse one of this passage and cry out to God. Get to that place where you're humbled enough to say, God, preserve me, protect me. And then revisit this again. Because our our heart should be, church, like the psalmist's heart in Psalm 73, verse 25. There, the psalmist writes, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth, nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's the heart that we want, church. As we look to the one true God, we all also recognize the differences across the human landscape. When we look to the one true God, there's this natural division that occurs when we look across the human landscape. And I don't say this in a way that would encourage us to turn our back on someone who is not a Christian, but we are discerning. When we become God's, He gives us the ability to discern who is it we're dealing with. Are we dealing with a fellow believer? Are we we dealing with a non-believer? We need to be aware of who we're interacting with. That's what we get to here in verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. My parents are really good about sharing with me when they encounter other Christians. My parents who aren't here again this morning, they take care of of people uh, in the hospitality business. A lot of times they'll, they'll come and join us via Zoom if they can. But when I stop in to see my folks for a quick visit or, or a meal, they'll oftentimes share with me an encounter they've had with another saint. And it's very uplifting to them. It's very uplifting to me to hear that because so often we want to focus on, wow, we're like the only ones, but we're not the only ones. There's Christians that God uses all throughout the land. It's just we tend to know who we're closest to. My parents being in the business that they're in get to see a a pretty high frequency and turnover And it's a blessing to hear that. And like I said, this is looking out across the human landscape and seeing those differences. And even as we travel, we should be willing to identify ourselves as Christians and see if we can identify other Christians. Peter took time to use powerful language to remind his readers of what it means to be a part of God's, God's family. In 1 Peter 2.9, it's a passage we've, we've touched upon many times before. It's worth writing down in your notes if you're keeping notes. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
1 Peter 2.9. That's a big difference compared to those who haven't been called into the royal priesthood or the holy nation. So contrary to those who are in this group, who we would call saints, is another group. So contrary to this group we just covered, is another group. The psalmist describes them in verse 4. Now listen to how this description goes. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So what the psalmist is doing here is clearly articulating practices that are not in keeping with what God's people do. Different practices, religious practices, if you will, that are false, not after the one true God. They're, they're clearly pursuing that which is contrary to God, false gods. We encounter this group and we still have a responsibility to share the gospel, to interact, to be faithful to the Lord's commission to make disciples wherever we go. But church, even though we are to interact, that does not mean we participate or take on these practices. They are still to be away from us. They are to be separated from us. We are not to take the name of a false god upon our lips or to offer the sacrifices to a false god that they would offer. And this can be a difficult task. It may seem easy enough, as I'm sharing with you here in this nice setting, oh, of course not, I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't do those things. But you get caught up in a conversation with a close coworker, and next thing you know, you're nodding in agreement and going along with the things they're saying because you're going to have to come to work the next day and the next day and the next day. When do you share the truth? Obviously, they're somewhere else. But once you get entrenched and you go down that path, it's, it's hard to get out of it. We tend to be uncomfortable with what Jesus said, that he came to bring a sword. He didn't come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. Mark 10, 34. That means when we hold to what he held to, when we hold to what Jesus held to and live the way he lived, when we speak the way he spoke, we're going to get the result that he promised. Let me remind you what he said in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. That is going to happen. Jesus said it would. If we are doing what Jesus said we should do, we can expect that the world is going to hate us. Do not hear me say that we're trying to be hated. Okay, we're not, we're not trying to poke the bear. We're not trying to get hated by those who would be opposed to us. But it will happen if we're being faithful to walk according to God's word in this life. But that is okay, for we have much more to look forward to besides what this, what this world offers. This world is temporal. And although we may find much goodness in the lives God has given us, it's not eternal. There might be glimpses of eternal glory, 
But that's all they are. They are glimpses of what is to come. So as we just took time to look at what it means to follow the one true God, to to stand firmly established and, and gazing upon him, calling out to him, and what that means for our life, that we are his chosen people, this allows us now to look forward to what he does with us. If we are his, if we look to him and we trust him, we can expect that he's going to give us our fullness of being. If you think, I'm I'm just a shell of a person walking around. I don't even know who I am. Look to God and expect he's going to give you his fullness of being that he wants you to have. He's going to fill you. That's what we're going to look at next, our fullness of being. In verses 5 through 8. In verse 5 of chapter 16, it says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. When I first read that, when I, when I look at it and don't really meditate upon it, but just read through it, the first thing that comes in my mind is this just mound of good food, like this portion, this, this feast. And in my hand, this, this cup. I'm not a wine drinker, but I'm picturing from, from the biblical text that it's a, it's a good cup of wine, unending. That's what I picture in my mind. But then when you slow down and you say, well, what's really being shown here in the text? What is my portion? The Lord is my chosen portion. The Lord is my chosen portion. This isn't necessarily going to be a tangible. This is knowing that God is your chosen portion. This is what is being presented here. We get to be part of God's family. That is what is so special about being a part of God's family, is that we have this ongoing relationship with him. Seth, when we, we were preaching through Ephesians, he, he hammered on this in one, one of the sermons. We get God. You guys remember, remember that? Seth was up here saying, we get God. That is our chosen portion. We get God. And God gets us. That's what's being expressed here in verse 5. And it's very similar to what we saw in verse 2. At the end of verse 2, we have no good that's apart from him. No good comes that is apart from God. And it's this idea here again in verse 5. Being in relationship with the Lord is what gives us our fullness of being. It's what matters. And it's the way that he directs our life to glory, to his glory. He directs my life to his glory. That is our portion. It doesn't mean that you have to have the perfect job. You don't have to have the perfect house. You don't even have to have a house to have a a perfect portion. As long as you have God, your portion is, is cared for. For all of eternity, your portion is cared for. We work diligently where God has placed us and we trust him with the outcome. And as we go through this life, we are going to find that we're going to be placed in different settings. 
We are starting to get stratified as a church body, which is a good thing. We have young and we have more old and everything in between. We have some that are going off to college soon, some that'll be here, some that are maybe gonna retire at some point, who knows? But in each one of those places, as we live for God, we trust him for the outcome. He is our portion. We work diligently where he puts us. And now, just because I stand up here and I say that, that we work diligently where God has placed us and we trust him with the outcome, doesn't mean that we don't struggle to take control. I know I struggle with that. I want to take some control. But we are to trust God with the outcome. You are to trust God with the outcome. We are to encourage each other in that light to trust God with where he has us. Right on the heels of verse five, God being our our chosen portion, is verse six. Verse six reads, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. As this psalm is being worked through, as we're coursing through it, Remember, we start out with a call out to God. Preserve me, O God. As we have continued to follow what what comes after that, we get to this place near the middle of the the psalm where the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Isn't that a far cry from just preserve me, O God? But it has to start there in order for us to get here. And it's going to continue as we go along through this passage. And I've already shared with you some of the not-so-rosy parts about David's life. If you take time to read in the Old Testament about King David, you're going to see that there's more. It's not just the the few that I selected. He, He struggled, just like we all struggle. And yet, this was still true as he penned it. It's true for us as well that what God has promised for us is better than what we might be walking through right now in this life. It's far better. What's being highlighted is that we, as we increase our trust in God, we notice that what we have now pales in comparison to what he's promising us in the future. As we trust in God now, we realize what we have before us pales in comparison to what he's promising us in the future. He is working out our salvation, our salvation in Christ. Focus upon that. And we too start to say, I have a beautiful inheritance. I have a future that is secure. It's been purchased by Christ. This is a good place to be. From there, continuing on in the psalm, verse 7 says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Another good thing that comes from the Lord. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. Returning once again to our pattern, we surrender to God. That's what happened in verses 1 and 2, acknowledging that all good comes from him. 
And that has to include counsel that aligns with God's word, as seen here. This isn't any and all counsel. We receive counsel, seems like nonstop. We can search it out from person to person, and God uses people to counsel us. God uses Christian people in our lives. God uses non-Christian people in our lives. God uses literature that's been produced by professionals. He uses articles and books. God uses all forms of counsel. But wherever that counsel originates from, it has to align with God's word. And that means all of God's word. You can't just pick one little verse and say, oh, the person was telling me that I can do this, and it's the same as this one little verse in Scripture taken out of context, therefore I'm good to go. Counsel from the Lord. That's not how it works, church. It's all of God's word kept in context. The counsel that we receive needs to marry up with that. If it doesn't, then we continue to go before the Lord. We study his word. We seek prayer. We look to those who we can trust. Counsel cannot be contrary to the written word of God. But the counsel that we do receive that is from God is part of our beautiful inheritance. It is so good to grow in wisdom, in truth, and to see good and evil. And we are given that discernment as we walk with the Lord. It's a good thing. And we can ask the Lord as we're studying scripture and as we're struggling to put it into into real life application, like, God, what does this really mean for me in my life right now? You can ask him, God, what does this mean for my life right now? You can ask the elders of the church. We want you to ask us. We'd love to entertain the challenges that you're facing and to go to scripture with you and to pray with you. Ask. Ask for help. Seek counsel. God says it is a good thing and all counsel needs to be in accordance with his word. Ask the elders. We have given ourselves to much time of study of God's word. That is what we do at our elder meetings. We study God's word together. We pray together. We pray for you together. But if you don't ever come and ask us, like, we, I need some clarity. I'm struggling with this area or that area. We can only do so much. Ask. And this is for anybody in the church. This is for fathers and mothers. This is for husbands and wives. This can be husbands and wives separate, husbands and wives together. It can be for teens and those who are younger than teens. It's our privilege to come alongside you, to encourage you, and to help you. And we can do this in part because of what we see in this next verse. In verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. 
This is our aim as shepherds. We want the Lord always to be set before us. This was King David's desire. He wanted the Lord to be always before the people, to be seeking the Lord, and he did that. That's why God says he had a a heart that was after his own because he continued to seek the Lord. Did Did he have struggles? Did he fail? Yes, we've already highlighted some of those. But the pattern of his life was such that he would always return to God, to put the Lord always before him, to see God high and lifted up. So practically speaking, what happens when we are facing a challenge in life? It hits us. The wave is upon us. And next thing you know, you're flailing around like you're drowning. Isn't that how it usually works? The conflict happens. It's like a giant wave comes over you, and you start flailing around. We think, I've got to do something, and I've got to do it right now. The answer needs to come immediately. In my training in aviation, and I probably shared this illustration before, whenever we're dealing with an emergency in the cockpit, and Nathan's probably heard this too, one of the first steps that your instructor will tell you to do is wind the clock. You know what winding the clock does? It does nothing to solve the problem at hand, but it slows you down. It says, okay, take a breath. Analyze what's really going on here. Don't jump to conclusions. Wind the clock really isn't any, in any steps in the checklist. It's just a technique. But it slows you down. And that's what we need to do when we're in the middle of a conflict. Slow down. Don't feel like you have to solve it right now. Get adequate counsel from the Lord. Make sure it's in accordance with his word. And you will be blessed. Put the Lord always before you. And what is the result of that? You're going to have an unshakable foundation. The scriptures here say unshakable. Unshakable. I want that kind of a foundation. Vanessa and I put Matthew 7, 24, 27 in our, in our wedding ceremony. It's uh, Jesus' parable of building the house on, on the rock. We want a solid foundation in our marriage. As a church, we want a solid foundation to live our lives upon. That's Jesus Christ. So in our community group this week, what I intend to do is to look at how Peter uses and incorporates this section of Psalm 16 in the Sermon on Pentecost. So at the very beginning of the the church age, talk about a foundation point in the life of the church. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches a section from Joel is there, and then a section from Psalm 16 is in that sermon. We're going to take a look at the foundational aspects of what it means to have an unshakable foundation in Christ. And I would encourage you to take a look at this for yourself and say, wow, God started the church age, if you will, really set it on fire on the day of Pentecost. And this was in the sermon that was preached on that day, inspired by the Holy Spirit to bring about 3,000 souls added to the church at once. It's a place I look forward to spending some time with in community group this week. 
So here we are. We, we've reached another transition point in the sermon. We've reached another place where we're going to move from looking at the fullness of being, which hopefully you've, you've been feeling this swell as we focus upon the Lord. And, we, and we're going to shift from there to saying, well, what could happen next? If, we're, if God is the one true God, he's given us our fullness of being. Well, now we realize that there's joy Joy in walking with the Lord. He has given us joy. It's a gift. It's been blessed upon us, given to us. And it's not going to diminish in the face of hardship either. In verse 9, we read, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. This just gets better and better and better as we're going through Psalm 16. We course through this psalm and as it unfolds in the manner that we've been been seeing, we call out to God. We, We put our trust in him and what he can do, seeing that he knows better than we even know. We might think we know what we're doing, but God knows better. So we seek him and say, God, show me where I'm being blind. And he does that. He is faithful to give us trustworthy counsel. And we come to a place where we cannot be shaken, that we are on a firm foundation. And what follows that? Joy. Joy follows. And that's where we are right now. A heart of gladness, a whole body rejoice. A whole body rejoicing experience. Church, each of us are being tossed about in this life as we're walking through it. Some of us right now more violently than others. But ask yourself, where are you finding your gladness? Where's your gladness coming from? Is it coming from the Lord? Is your gladness coming from the Lord? Is it when you come together with his people, when the Lord's people are gathered, are you finding gladness in the gathering of the saints? What we find as we are walking with the Lord, there is joyfulness there. There is a gladness of heart. There is a rejoicing to be had. And if it's not, again, Pour out your heart to the Lord. He wants to hear you. He wants you to call out to him. You might be, and not even realize it, dangling over the precipice, but being held by the blood of Christ. That's a good place to be because you're saved, but not a whole lot of gladness is there. You don't want to be hanging over the precipice for long. What we see is in verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. When we trust in the Lord, we trust in him for eternity. We trust in him forever. Yes, for right now, but more importantly, for where we're going for all of eternity. And this is our, our security. Our soul is not abandoned to Sheol. But what about this portion at the, at the end of verse 10, where it says, 
your holy one will not see corruption, or the, no corruption for the holy one. Or in the NASB and in the NIV, the holy one will not undergo decay. What does that mean? What is David talking about there? He certainly had seen dead people before, and their bodies don't stay preserved. So once again, David is acting prophetically here. He is speaking prophetically of one who was to come, who would sit upon his throne that would not see decay. Church, you realize who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, who conquered death, the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Prophetically, David was speaking to this. He would have had no knowledge, no working knowledge of this, but by faith, this is what is being penned through the Holy Spirit's anointing upon him. It's no longer David speaking of himself in the, in the here and now, but prophetically of what is to come. Paul picks up on this. Paul speaks of this in Acts chapter 13. And he does so in a, a very helpful way. So I'm going to read Acts 13, verses 35 through 37. See what Paul does with this section here. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. David died and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. His body decayed. Verse 37, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So Paul looks back again at this psalm that we're working through this morning, and he preaches the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the power of the resurrection, right here in Psalm 16. We will not be abandoned when we put our faith in Christ. And although our flesh will rot away in the grave, we will be given glorified and new bodies on the day of the Lord. When he comes back, he will restore and make all things new. If we are in his, his unloosable grip, that is our future. Now, the devil will try to destroy this and will tell you it's a, a fallacy, but it is true. God's word affirms it. This leads, again, to praise. If God is holding us like this and not abandoning us to Sheol and his Holy One will not see corruption, this brings us to verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is where you have to get to. If you follow the course that we've fallen, going along with the psalmist today, you end up praising the Lord, being in his presence in fullness of joy, picturing being at the right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. This is where we are led to. 
when we focus upon the work of Christ, when we focus upon the power of the resurrection, when we recognize our head is being spoken of, the head of the church, Christ, is at the right hand of God the Father. He is our leader and he has done all of this for us. He makes known the path of life. I want that, that path. He makes it known. I want to see it more clearly and I want to walk upon it. And I want you with me walking along it side by side. Christ opened up this path for us through his own suffering so that we might have joy, eternal joy, everlasting glory. So we, like the psalmist, recognize that it is sometimes the the smallest thread that we are rescued by. It could be the smallest tether that is stretched thin to the point of breaking, but it will not break if it is being held fast by Christ. This is where we might be right now, dangling over that precipice. I could be speaking to someone here in the room that is at that place. And your faith could be as small as that needle in a haystack of refuse that Jason mentioned last week. That's all you need to lead you onto the path of life. Cling to it and allow the Lord to use it. Trust God and by faith live according to his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a glorious and a good God. And in our desperation, Lord, so often we we flail about in hysteria. We look everywhere. But God, what we have seen today is we need to call out to you. We need to call out to you, the one true God. Lord, you have provided a way of everlasting life through Christ. So we call out to you now in prayer, saying, Lord, do the work that you have come to do in each and every life here present. Lord, rescue us. Don't allow us to try to rescue ourselves. Put us in such a place where we have to call out to you. Preserve me, O God. Rescue me, O God. You are the one true God, and you can do this. You have done this. Our eternity is secure in Christ. May we walk accordingly. May we walk by faith as your chosen people. No matter what hardships might come upon us as we do so, may our eyes stay firmly fixed upon you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.